3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the lands from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 7.01 in the morning on the 27th of April. Uh... I'm alone in the studio today, so I have nobody to agree with me that the year continues to fly by. But, uh, wow, we're almost uh, a whole third of the way into the year. Um, but I did have a, a good reminder from a friend the other day that uh, April is the new January. So if you haven't started kicking the goals that you've set for this year, uh, that's all right, because uh, you can basically start now and it doesn't even matter. The past three months don't count, four months. Um, but uh, we have a big show on for you today, as always. So we're going to start up by hearing from Giselle Hanna from Australia Asia Worker Links to talk about the 10-year anniversary commemorations of the devastating collapse of Rana Plaza in Bangladesh, which claimed the lives of over a 1,000 people, largely garment factory workers, and injured several thousand more on the 24th of April in 2013. We're going to speak about commemorative events that have been happening this week in Melbourne, including tomorrow's Lives Not Numbers photo exhibition launch and the importance and potential of international worker solidarity. If that name sounds familiar, it's because you can catch Giselle on AAWL's 3CR program, Asia Pacific Currents, every Saturday morning from 9 to 9.30 a.m. After that, we're going to hear Inez's interview from earlier this week with Matisse Leida, who is an actor, writer, model, producer, and all-around sweetheart, uh, to chat about Matisse and Nisha Hunter's We and Good, which is a collaborative food platform that's dedicated to amplifying queer, black, indigenous, and people of color. And they spoke about how queerness, culture, and food intersect and what redefining good food looks like. And you can catch the world premiere of We and Good, the film, on Saturday the 6th of May at Footscray Community Arts Centre uh, from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. as part of the Human Rights Arts and Film Festival. And you can also rent the film online at Acme if you're not able to make it for the launch. After that, we're going to be replaying an interview that Fung from Tuesday Breakfast did with Dr. Jessica Hambly, who's a senior lecturer at the ANU College of Law and co-director of the Law Reform and Social Justice Program. She's a socio-legal scholar with interest in access to justice for people seeking asylum, asylum law and procedure, refugee rights, gender and migration, legal professions and radical lawyering, inclusion and participation in legal spaces, court and tribunal, including online architectures, and she's worked with number of grassroots migrant and refugee rights organizations, including Bristol Refugee Rights, Lesbos Legal Center, and Samos Legal Center. And just joined Fung to talk about Australia's cruel refugee policies and how they have impacted the development of policies in other countries as well. 
And finally for today, I'm going to be joined by Kerry Klim, who listeners may recognize from a previous episode of Women on the Line, where we talked about racial injustice and racial violence in the workplace. And Kerry's joining me today to have a chat about the everyday lived impacts on First Nations people of mainstream conversations about a First Nations voice to Parliament and the push for constitutional recognition, which is an issue that she notes has been frequently left out of mainstream media's Indigenous Affairs coverage. Kerry is a Guguyelangi and Kokolama Lama woman from far north Queensland, and she now lives in Mianjin, the land of the Turbal and Yagara peoples. And she runs creative communications consultancy Flashback, uh, Flashback, sorry, and has over 25 years in mainstream and First Nations media. So I'm really keen to have that conversation because, as Kerry has mentioned, there's been um, you know, quite selective media coverage uh, in terms of both, you know, narrowing down uh, oppositions to the voice to parliament, but also not necessarily taking into account at all. And in fact, fanning the flames of turning First Nations people into a political football, which, as we're going to discuss, has serious on the ground consequences for First Nations people just trying to live their lives in the lead up to the referendum. So that's all coming up on Thursday morning breakfast. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Salam be hamegi. This is Jahan Khonlu from Salam Radio. Tune in 4 to 6 p.m. every Sunday on 3CR for a wide selection of modern music from the greater Middle East and beyond. We feature guests both locally and internationally based to help bring new sounds to you. For more information, please follow our Instagram at Salam Radio Show. So tune on in. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And these are the news headlines for Thursday, the 27th of April. Yesterday, the Victorian government announced its decision to raise the age of criminal responsibility to just 12 years old. The Human Rights Law Centre has expressed deep concern based on evidence showing the earlier a child experiences incarceration, the higher the risk of reoffending and becoming entrenched in the justice system. While the Victorian government says they will consider raising the age to 14 years by no later than 2027, concerns for the protection of incarcerated children remain urgent. An open letter released on Monday and signed by 126 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health, legal, community and human rights organizations states, quote, raising the age to only 12 is inconsistent with health and medical evidence. Detention is harmful for all children and internationally accepted human rights standards call for an increase to 14 years as the bare minimum age of criminal responsibility, end quote. The open letter also provides evidence of particularly high rates of, quote, additional neurocognitive impairment, trauma, and mental health issues, end quote, among criminalized children, with First Nations children at particular risk being 26 times more likely to be incarcerated compared to their peers. And abolitionist advocate organizations, including Sisters Inside, have raised concerns about the limitations on raising the age from uh, to just 14, uh, arguing that no child should be in prison. Also in the news headlines, community consultation has begun for a new medically supervised injecting room in the Melbourne CBD. After the success of Victoria's first safe injecting room in Richmond, the Victorian government has followed key recommendations from an independent review to establish a second facility in the city of Melbourne. 
Medically supervised injecting rooms provide a space for people to safely inject drugs of dependents as well as on-site health care and other vital services, including housing and legal support. So far, the North Richmond facility has treated over 6,500 overdoses and has reported preventing 63 deaths. While a site for the CBD injecting room has not yet been confirmed, experts including the Australian Medical Association continue to urge that the project goes ahead. A survey will be open for community input between the 6th of April 2023 and Tuesday the 16th of May 2023, and information gathered in the survey will make up part of the advice provided to the Victorian government. To have your say, you can head to engage.vic.gov.au forward slash MSIS have your say. That's all one word, MSIS have your say. In other news, in their latest statements regarding the federal budget, the Albanese government has again refused to commit to any certain increase to the current job seeker payment. Treasurer Jim Chalmers has promised some cost of living relief in the federal budget and claims that support will target the most vulnerable, but has not specified what this support will entail. Almost half of people currently on the job seeker payment experience disability or chronic health conditions and are unable to sustain full-time work. Stringent qualifications include many from accessing the disability support pension, which sits at $278 more than the job seeker payment per fortnight. Anti-poverty advocates, including the Australian Unemployed Workers Union and Anti-Poverty Centre, have condemned the government's decision, raising serious concerns about Labor's failure to alleviate the systemic injustice faced by people on social security payments who are forced to survive on an income well below the Henderson poverty line. Activists have also noted the government's failure to listen to the recommendations from its own admittedly flawed Economic Inclusion Committee, which has also recommended immediately raising the rate of Social Security payments. Yesterday, across uh, sorry, ACOS, along with hundreds of politicians, academics and advocates, called on the Albanese government to raise the job seeker rate, maintaining that the impact of living on such low payments further exacerbates barriers to paid work. These have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 27th of April. And before we wrap up, I just want to let listeners know uh, this event that I'm going to mention is going to be happening in Sydney. But um, I encourage people to get involved uh, if they can or to let people that they know in Sydney to get involved, uh, to also get involved in campaigning online. And this is a rally to raise the rate on Friday the, tw- uh, the 28th of April at 12 p.m. in Marrickville. And you can find out more about this, which is run by the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, by going to nobodydeservespoverty.org.au. That's nobodydeservespoverty.org.au. Um, and you can find out a lot more about the campaign to raise the rate, what uh, a livable social security income would look like, uh, you know, how this relates to the cost of living crisis, and uh, also documentation of the, you know, hundreds of appeals and massive community effort that has gone into attempts to draw the government's attention to the dire situation faced by people on social security payments who are you know, unable to make ends meet, who are living in poverty, and nobody deserves to live in poverty. Um, as anti-poverty center activists have drawn our attention to, poverty is a political choice. Uh, so 
Uh, as the Australian Unemployed Workers Union has stated quite clearly, the government's given welfare recipients no choice but to protest. So uh, once again, head to nobodydeservespoverty.org.au and you can find out more about this campaign in general, but also about the rally that's happening tomorrow, Friday the 28th of April at 12 p.m. in Sydney. And this is on 334A Marrickville Road in Marrickville. So if you are in Sydney and happen to be listening now, head down. If you've got friends that live in Sydney, let them know. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. 3CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. The Uruk Justice Commission is the first formal truth-telling inquiry into injustice experienced by First Peoples in Victoria. From Thursday, April 27 to Friday, May 12, Uruk is holding public hearings to question Victorian Government Ministers, Senior Bureaucrats and Chief Commissioner of Victoria Police about injustice against First Peoples in the child protection and criminal justice systems. You can watch the hearings online or make a submission at urukjusticecommission.org.au A 3CR supporter. From Iran to the Americas, the Pacific to Palestine, and here in so-called Australia, people are standing up for freedom and liberation. This May Day at Melbourne State Library, join the voice of Revolution Iran Melbourne, the Black People's Union, renegade activists, unionists, and people from all over the world as we stand together in understanding that we are all in this together. A lineup of speakers and music from around the world demanding justice and celebrating our common struggles and our common humanity will be announced on the event page soon. You can find the event by searching May Day for Freedom and Liberation on Facebook. May Day for Freedom and Liberation, 5.30pm, Monday 1st of May at State Library, Victoria. A 3CR community radio supporter. Hi, my name is Robbie Thorpe. Black and Deadly on Fridays from 11 to 12 o'clock. Looking at all the best uh, Black and Deadly music, entertainers and performers around this country. Join me then from 11 to 12 Fridays. Community Radio, Thresia, 8.55 on the AM dial.
published or not, has been on air for over 20 years. And in that time, it's been hosted by Jan Goldsmith. Well, just recently, over the last seven years, I've been joined by David McLean. We'll be talking about text, discussing words and ideas. With local authors, authors from interstate, or sometimes even from other countries. You can stream it live or find it on your favourite podcast app. So join us every Thursday at 11.30 on 3CR. I've been working on my rewrite, that's right. I'm going to change the ending. Going to throw away my title and toss it in the trash. Panoply, panorama, panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual. Knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR 855am digital and 3cr.org.au. The Setting Sun Film Festival, the film festival of the West, is 10 this year. Come and celebrate at the opening night at the Sun Theatre in Yarraville on Thursday, 11th of May, or catch a film, event or activity right through till Friday, 26th of May. All Setting Sun Film Festival details and tickets are available online at settingsun.com.au. The Setting Sun Film Festival is a proud 3CR supporter. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children aged 3 and 4 can access 15 hours per week of free kindergarten. In a kinder program, children learn through play, art, music and dance. Qualified teachers create culturally safe places for Aboriginal children and families. Koori kids shine at kindergarten. Find out more at vic.gov.au forward slash koori-kids-shine. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. I just wanted to uh, once again plug that rally that's happening tomorrow run by the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. So if you didn't catch the details before, yes, this rally is in Sydney to raise the rate, but also this is a big online campaign that is rolling on and we want folks to, you know... um, really get involved in this struggle to raise the rate. You know, we've seen calls from across the board from the government's own Economic Inclusion Committee, uh, from anti-poverty advocates like the Australian Unemployed Workers Union and Anti-Poverty Centre, and now from a whole list of community sector organisations, uh, experts and advocates and uh, that have published an open letter yesterday. So to find out more about the rally that's happening tomorrow in Sydney, but also what you can do to support the campaign, you can head to Nobody Deserves poverty.org.au you're listening to thursday morning breakfast on 3cr 855 am 
And now we are going to be joined by Giselle Hanna, uh, who is from Australia Asia Worker Links. And uh, you may recognize Giselle's voice from Australia Asia Worker Links program on 3CR Asia Pacific Currents. And Giselle's joining us to talk about the 10-year anniversary commemorations of the devastating collapse of Rana Plaza in Bangladesh, which claimed the lives of over a 1,000 people, largely garment factory workers, and injured several thousand more. So we're going to speak about commemorative events that are happening this week in Melbourne, including tomorrow's Lives Not Numbers photo exhibition launch and the importance and potential of international worker solidarity. Giselle, sorry about that. Let me try that again. Giselle, have we got you? You sure do. Good morning. How are you, Priya? Good morning. I'm good. How are you? Very well, thank you. Um, thank you very much for <laughs> bearing with um, so, some of the technical issues. I know that uh, I don't. I don't usually say how the sausage is made while we're doing the show, <laughs> but um, uh, it's all good. It's all yeah. good. I'm a I'm a 3CR person. I know. True. No you, problem. You are excellent, and um, love your coverage on Asia Pacific Currents, and really glad to be able to chat to you today. Thank um, you. So this past Monday, the 24th of April, marked the 10-year anniversary of the Rana Plaza building collapse, which killed over 1,130 people and injured at least 2,500 others. So can you start off uh, by briefly taking us through the appalling working conditions in the Rana Plaza garment factories that sort of precipitated this original event 10 years ago? Sure. So the first thing I'll say is Rana Plaza was an eight-storey building and inside that building it housed about five garment factories. It also, on the on the lower levels, on like the ground floor, it had some banks, uh, it had some shop fronts and things like that. In the days leading up to the collapse of the factory, Bangladesh experienced some tremors. And a couple of days before the collapse, workers noticed that there were cracks in the walls of the building. Actually, the day before, so on the Sunday, the 23rd of April, all of the shops on the ground floor closed for the day. They decided that the building was too unsafe. They closed for the Sunday and the Monday. Now, in Bangladesh... Uh, wages are paid monthly. And, of course, this event happened on the 24th of April. The garment workers who are predominantly women, so we're talking, um, you know, four, 5,000 workers, refused to go to work that day. They stood outside the plant and they said, we're not going into work. People's families said to them, that building's not stable, don't go to work. The boss, Suhail Rana, who owns the building and, and as a result owns the factories in the building, threatened the workers with non-payment of those monthly wages. So there were, there were six days left of the month. Mm. They would have missed out on 24 days of wages and compelled the workers to go. So after this standoff at the um, gates of the factory, those workers eventually went to work. And within an hour or 90 minutes of them going to work, the building collapsed. Some of the workers that we've spoken to describe it was like a free-fall plummeting of an elevator. That's what it felt like. And the building literally collapsed under them. But the banks were closed, the shops were closed, but those garment workers were compelled to go. I should also say, some six months before... So in November 2012, another factory, Tazreen Garment Factory, 
that factory burnt down. Mm. It burnt down with workers alive in it. So over 100 workers were killed in that factory fire. So this issue of building safety, occupational health and safety conditions in the garment industry in Bangladesh is much, much bigger than Rana Plaza. But given the significance um, and, the, and the volume of devastation that Rana Plaza, it's actually one of the world's um, biggest and most serious industrial murders. Uh, and, and that's part of why we focus on that particular event. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for, for sort of taking us through the history of the event, but also contextualizing it, uh, because I think it really does exemplify a lot of, uh, you know, it, it, it's sort of, it's sort of like a crucible for a lot of the anti-union kind of pushes that were, that were and are happening in Bangladesh, um, you know, and the, it, severe exploitation of workers that are in those garment factories, the fact that they're only paid at the end of the month and so they are forced to go in to ensure that they have those wages and not not even two hours afterwards, um, you know, their worst fears come true, is just such a horrific example of um, a violation of labor rights and, as you said, industrial murder. So the collapse of Rana Plaza and its devastating consequences has really laid bare as well the importance of international solidarity between workers that interface with points across the global supply chain. So can you tell us about the development or strengthening of solidarity between workers in so-called Australia and garment workers in Bangladesh in relation to Rana Plaza, but also issues more broadly, and how some of these relationships have been developing over time? It's a, it's an excellent question and I'm going to give you a bit of a long answer, Priya, unfortunately. So if you don't have time, you're going to have to try and wind me up. But here's no, what no, I want to say it. about international solidarity is the politics are very, very complicated. You know, sometimes as leftists we think, ah, oh, international solidarity, inherently good. And I agree. I mean, I've dedicated my life to building international solidarity. But you, used a very particular phrase in your question, which is a global supply chain, which is an important phrase, an excellent phrase, and it's how Australia Asia Worker Links tries to organise. We've used lots of different ways to describe this. We call it international industrial action. We call it global picket line. The idea that the economy uh, is global, that um, the exploitation of workers is global. It's a necessary, this is the thing to get. It is an inherent and a necessary component of global capitalism, the exploitation of workers. And capitalism is inherently international, so our resistance must also be international. But in relation to that global supply chain, see what that incorporates is all of the components involved in producing a commodity and part of if you if you're a Marxist one of the things that one of the tenets of Marxism is that capitalism brings with it the alienation of labor from the end product and then these global supply chains and um, just-in-time production and so forth actually separate all of those bits so the workers that make the chemicals that dye the textiles the workers that transport the finished product the worker or, or that um, transport the components to the factories, the workers that actually sew those garments together, the workers that pick up those um, items and clothing and transport them either to the docks or the airports where they are then flown, the workers that fly or transport those pieces to their end destination, the workers that sell 
those final garments. They are all a part of the global supply chain and are effectively alienated from each other and the products of their labour. And so our organising is around that. Now, one of the pressures in international solidarity, and this is the distinction between NGOs and, say, unions that do some of this organising, is in garments for some reason in particular, there is such an emphasis on end users, so basically consumers. Mm. And if you apply a Marxist analysis to that, actually consumers and producers are the same people. That's us. We're both the workers and we're the ones that go to the shop that buy the clothes and buy the food and buy everything. Mm -hmm. But where our power is stronger is in our productive labour, not in our consumption. We are basically atomised as consumers. So there is a lot in the international solidarity space around Ghana and Bangladesh and Rana Plaza that would be about ethical clothing, ethical purchasing. And Australia Asia Workerlings does not organise that way. And we actually think there are a lot of problems with that. One of the things that happened in the days, in the days following the collapse of Rana Plaza was the development of this thing called the Accord on Fire and Building Safety in Bangladesh. Now, I want to say this. That accord has very many useful components to it. But what I want to... Everybody talks about what's good about it. I want to offer some criticisms of it. Firstly, the accord is an agreement that labels, fashion brands are supposed to sign on to, to say, we're not going to allow our brand to be produced in a garment factory where exploitation happens. Well, the first thing is... Every garment factory has exploitation. The other component of it was this was not created by workers. This was created by NGOs and by labour union centres, so like um, big federations, big international federations. Mm -hmm. It removes the power of workers to actually raise their own demands and fight for things industrially. And in my view, that makes it inherently weak because if it wasn't fought and won on the ground, it, it... can disappear just as quickly it was created. And this was created within the days following the collapse of Rana Plaza. Mm -hmm. So in terms of building international solidarity um, and international worker solidarity, what AAWL is trying to do is map the global supply chain, finding all of those components that I talked about earlier, the workers that make the chemicals that dye the products, the ones that transport it, the ones that produce the textiles, the ones that sew the textiles, the ones that sell the textiles. So in Australia in particular, um, we're working with the TCFUA, so that is now known as CFMEU Manufacturing, and they're the people that represent the workers that make textiles and sew clothes. Mm-hmm. RAFU, the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union, they represent the workers that sell the end products. Mm-hmm. So RAFU, us, CFMEU, and then... Um, developing a project to actually map all of those other components and build links with those unions, not just in Australia, but right across the world, to start identifying the choke points in the global supply chain, the areas that we can exploit to apply maximum pressure 
to achieve maximum outcomes. Whether so, what the workers at Runner Plaza are asking for is compensation. Mm-hmm. Two thousand five hundred people survived that, but in order to be rescued from those buildings, some of them had to have limbs amputated. Some of them are permanently damaged and can't go back to work where their families are relying on them. Some had to send children in to do their jobs because they weren't able to do it. So those workers, the survivors, are asking for compensation. They're asking that Sohail Rana, the guy that owns the building, finally comes to justice on what was one of the world's biggest industrial murders. They're fighting for the right to unionise. Unionisation is not something that is handed to people. These workers are out and, and on Monday, the 24th of April, they were out on the streets of Sava, which is the site where Rana Plaza was, fighting for the right to unionise and for their unions to be recognised so that they can raise these demands. And that's the work that we're doing to support that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, this fight to unionise and to push back against, you know, um, property owner and business owner uh, pushes that are anti-union and attempting to break up unions uh, is is such an important form of collective action that really is, you know, polar opposites to this idea of ethical consumption that you critiqued earlier, um, which, you know, very much uh, relies on uh, individual responsibility uh, and is totally divorced from an understanding of all these points along the global supply chain where people can be organizing together to uh, to actually improve labor conditions and achieve collective wins um, rather than uh, saying that, oh, just because I didn't shop at H&M or I'm not going to consume fast fashion, I've, I've sort of done my bit. Um, it's so much bigger than that. So... Um, Australia Asia Worker Links and the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union, RAFWU, has been holding several events this week to commemorate the 10-year anniversary of the Rana Plaza collapse and also do some of that important work of linking this into the broader context of international solidarity and organizing across the global supply chain. So can you tell us a bit about the last two events that you have coming up? So tomorrow's Lives Not Numbers photo exhibition by Bangladesh Garment Workers Solidarity President, uh, sorry, President Taslima Akhtar and the Fast Fashion Kills Symposium that you've got lined up for May Day, which also features special guest speakers from Bangladesh Garment Workers Solidarity. Certainly. So Taslima Akhtar is a photojournalist and an activist, and she's been um, documenting uh, struggle in Bangladesh for many, many years. When Rana Plaza collapsed, um, a number of our existing comrades whose union buildings were nearby rushed to the site in order to start the rescue mission. Taslima was one of them. In addition to participating in the rescue mission, she documented what was happening. So the way that she describes it is she bared witness to the devastation and made sure there was a document of the devastation. Mm for the purpose of campaigning and building a movement for justice for these workers. Um, Teslima caught some of the most powerful images following the collapse of Rana Plaza and one that some of your listeners might be familiar with is the infamous photo of the couple embracing each other and, and both of them de- are deceased. Um, and and that, that photo is one of the most iconic photos of the collapse of Rana Plaza. Mm-hmm. Teslima captured that photo. 
The exhibition is a document of the immediate aftermath and the 10 years of struggle um, since the collapse and what these workers have been fighting for. Because the other thing to remember is they're not passive people. Mm -hmm. These are activists. They're fighting. They don't need the world to come in and save them. They need their struggle to be seen and recognised and supported by way of solidarity. So that's what the Lives Not Numbers photo exhibition's about. And those prints will be available for purchase. And the proceeds of that will go to the Bangladesh Garment Workers Solidarity. And those are the people building a union in the garment industry. Kazlima is our guest, Australia Asia Work Links's guest. She'll be speaking at the launch and introducing the photos uh, and, intro- and briefing us on the campaign so far. We've also invited another woman, a young woman, Rupali Akhtar. Rupali is a survivor of Rana Plaza. She was buried under the rubble of the collapse of that building for 17 hours before she was rescued. Oh, my goodness. Um, and, you know, Taslima and those other comrades were amongst the people involved in that rescue mission. Since then, Rupali had a number of surgeries on her hips and legs because they were damaged. She tried to go back to work. Um, she went back to work for a couple of years. I think it's three years. And then her body's just given in. And so she is now the Secretary of the Bangladesh Garment Workers Solidarity, building unionism and fighting for rights in the garment industry. Mm. So the May Day event, um, which is... Uh, so we, there are a couple of groups have organised May Day rallies and we're respecting those rallies and trying not to organise a clash. So those rallies are at 5.30. There's an announcement at 3CR. Make sure you get to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but at 7 o'clock at Trades Hall... Um, Rupali and Taslima will be um, amongst five guest speakers. Jenny Crucial, the Secretary of the Textiles Division or Manufacturing Division of the CFMEU, will be one of the speakers. I'll be a speaker and an activist from RAFWU, Mon, um, will also be a speaker. So we're all talking about different aspects of why resistance and struggle and solidarity is necessary and that we need to move beyond uh, commemorations. Obviously, we mm-hmm. remember the dead and fight for the living. The the importance of this event is the fight for the living component. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, those two events also really complement each other in the sense that it's not about turning people's, you know, you know, turn, turning the tragedy of Rana Plaza into a spectacle uh, that's, you know, just something to feel sad about. But it's actually about saying these are the tangible actions that can be taken to make sure things like this never happen again um, and getting people involved. So um, I really encourage people to get along to that. And I will be playing uh, the May Day rally information as well. So you'll know about this and you'll know to attend May Day rally stuff too. And as you've said, they don't clash. So people are free to go to both. And I encourage them to do so. Um, but where can people find out more about Australia Asia Worker Links and the events we've discussed? And also, you know, given that Bangladeshi garment factory workers are still facing oppressive working conditions and barriers to unionizing and are out on the streets fighting for the right to unionize, how can listeners show their solidarity? Absolutely. So we have a website. It's all the w.aawl.org.au. The site's a little bit under construction, so forgive us that. And if there are any people with web skills out there that want to um, donate their time pro bono to help us fix that website. I will definitely take your call. Um, but you can mostly find us on social media. So if you look up 
AAWL on Facebook in particular. We have event pages for both of those events and you can find out more information about them then. You can also give me a call directly and my number is 0411-054-859. In relation to getting involved in a campaign, there is so much work to do. We're going to organise some training with the TWU, the Transport Workers Union, who are experts in mapping. So we're going to do some capacity building training so that people can learn how to map. And we need to map this industry. It's huge. And there's a climate um, justice component because... The level of environmental destruction created by the inappropriate disposal of fast fashion is devastating. So for those of you that are interested in climate, this is definitely the campaign for you. But we need people who are going to be mapping that and building the links. We're going to have um, sign-up sheets at both of those events, and that is really how you're going to be able to get your details to us so that we can keep in touch with you and so that we can work on these things together. If you can't get to the events, which I understand, hit us up on socials, but also I gave out my number and I'll do it again, 0411 Brilliant. Thank you. And yeah, uh, we'll have all of the information in our show notes. So you'll be able to, uh, you know, contact Giselle, get in touch with AWL and find out more about those events there. But Giselle, thank you so much for taking the time to join us this morning. A pleasure, Priya. Thanks so much for covering this really, really important issue. You uh, really gave us a chance to talk about international solidarity in a way that we really can't on other media platforms. I really appreciate your your excellent journalism. Oh, thank you so much and absolutely any time. Take care and have a great day. Cheers. And that was Giselle Hanna from Australia Asia Worker Links, who joined us to talk about the 10 year anniversary commemorations of the devastating collapse of Rana Plaza in Bangladesh, which claimed the lives of over 1000 people, largely garment factory workers and injured several thousand more. And we spoke about both commemorative events, but also uh, ongoing organizing for the rights to unionize uh, for disrupting and challenging uh, horrific labor conditions across the global supply supply chain uh, that have been happening this week in Melbourne and this includes a couple of upcoming events so there's tomorrow's Lives Not Numbers photo exhibition launch um, that is showcasing photographs by Taslima Akhtar and uh, we also spoke about the upcoming May Day event that they have Fast Fashion Kills which is not going to clash with other stuff so you uh, definitely should head to the May Day rallies that are already scheduled and then in the evening head to Fast Fashion Kills and we'll have all that information in our show notes and finally you can catch Giselle on AAWL's 3CR program Asia Pacific Currents every Saturday morning from 9 to 9.30 a.m. You are listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. From Iran to the Americas, the Pacific to Palestine, and here in so-called Australia, people are standing up for freedom and liberation. This May Day at Melbourne State Library, join the voice of Revolution Iran Melbourne, the Black People's Union, renegade activists, unionists and people from all over the world as we stand together in understanding that we are all in this together. A lineup of speakers and music from around the world demanding justice and celebrating our common struggles and our common humanity will be announced on the event page soon. You can find the event by searching May Day for Freedom and Liberation on Facebook. May Day for Freedom and Liberation, 5.30pm Monday 1st of May at State Library, Victoria. A 3CR community radio supporter.
we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And now we're going to hear an interview that Inez did earlier this week with Matisse Leida, who is an actor, writer, model, producer, and all-around sweetheart. And Matisse and Inez are going to be talking about Matisse and Nisha Hunter's We Eatin' Good, which is a collaborative food platform dedicated to amplifying queer, black, indigenous, and people of color's uh, community connections. So they spoke about how queerness, culture, and food intersect and what redefining good food looks like. Let's head into that now. Thanks so much for joining us here on Thursday Breakfast with Tease. How are you? Good morning. I'm good. How are you? I am good. I'm very excited to chat to you today because everything that you have been doing in like the culinary hospitality space has been so inspiring to see. Um, could you first tell us a little bit more about We Eatin' Good and how yourself and Nisha co-founded it? Um, thank you so much. <laughs> it means a lot. Um, we eating good. It started as a lockdown project for me. I was just cooking at home a lot, um, doing cookout, cookouts with my friends when the restrictions were up, of course. And I really was, I was just really inspired by seeing how we all connected and how we all came together and celebrated and ate and laughed and drank. And I wanted to highlight especially what food and culture does to queer people, how it brings us together. Um, And, you know, I just started posting videos online, posting food online, and opening up the platform to other people as well. And then when I wanted to make the project bigger, I brought Nisha along to help me co-produce it, and they do all the filming as well. We met because we started dating. Classic queer stories. (laughs) Literally, we started dating, and Nisha works a lot with food as well, does a lot of um, tapestry and dyes the fabrics with turmeric and I thought that was amazing and also was an amazing videographer and photographer so it was just the perfect match. That sounds like a really beautiful amalgamation of like kind of the best parts of weirdness and food and culture and especially with food I think is such an important aspect of culture. I think so many ways it's a way to show love when words are too hard and a way to celebrate and to mourn and a real like genuine place for community and you touched on it a little bit, but when you think about how culture and queerness intersects with food and cooking, what kind of comes to mind? For me, I think, and a lot of, I think, queer people of colour can relate to this, there is that disconnect with our culture at times, that aspects of, of our identity is not, you know, celebrated within our family and within our culture. You know, really that goes back to colonisation in the first place. And I think... Queer people, like, we disconnect from that in order to be our true selves. We want to live as authentically as we can. And a lot of that time, a lot of the times that doesn't mean that our culture and our queerness go together hand in hand, which is very sad. But I found, and I see in a lot of other queer people of color, we connect back through food, through making those dishes that we grew up with, Um, and especially for me, there's a part of my, I'm like the other side of my culture is Venezuelan. I 
have never been raised by the Venezuelan side of my family. I've never met any of them, but I connect back to that culture through food. Um, and it's also about cultural preservation and bringing people together and to celebrate your queerness and your culture as one. Yeah, it, it's, it's really important that we have spaces where we can feel comfortable to be both. A really important insight that there's so many times in a lot of our cultures that we don't feel fully accepted in our queerness and to find ways back through through food. I think that's really beautiful. It is so unbelievably exciting that we also have a We Eaten Good documentary film that has been selected as the Human Rights Arts and Film Festival. This is truly incredible, but could you tell us more about the making of the film and like kind of what it means to you now looking back at it? Me and Nisha call this film our baby. Like this film is literally our child. Um, it, we were doing the takeovers. If anyone who's been following Waiting Good for ages knows that we started opening up to the community, opening up the patient community through takeovers. So giving people the password to log in and share their food, share their culture, share their story share their queerness. It was really beautiful. It was gorgeous. It was every, people from all around the world were logging on and doing that. It, but it's so short. It was like, you know, 15 minutes on the story and it's there for ages, but we wanted to make something bigger, um, something closer to home um, and really highlight members of our community and do that in a way that we felt gave it justice. So I'm like, let's make a film. We did a web series first. That is a whole other story. But we had, you know, a little bit of practice doing it the first time and we were applying for funding and we're really lucky through Multicultural Arts Victoria to get some funding and also through AFIDS as well. And we really just gathered our friends and people that we look up to and members of the community to make this film. Everyone on set was queer, a person of colour, um, and it was so beautiful to go into the cast homes and just listen to them talk about what food means to them as a queer person of colour. It was the most rewarding experience of my life. I cried every day on set. It was and forever will be my favourite project to date. You know, no one tells you that after you make a film, the hardest part is, you know, where are you going to put it? How are people going to see it? And so we made it a year ago, and it's finally being shown. And with the Human Rights Arts and Film Festival as well, it makes so much sense. Our values are so aligned. It's going to be beautiful to see the community come together and witness this Um and the cast is amazing. Rio, Tanin, Erica, Hasib, all incredible members of community who do so much work for and with community and who are also amazing cooks. I ate some of that food. I ate all of that food. And it was too good. Being in people's homes, you get such a sense of what they care about and seeing their personalities and their culture and their queerness in their homes and then being able to connect that through food it's so unbelievably special and I can't wait to see it uh woohoo I think some people feel that you know food it's just food <laughs> and I feel like food and gatherings are inherently political 
you know, it's a place to gather for safety. And colonization will also often involve the exploitation of food and the destruction of agriculture and reduced access to food. And importantly, what's sadly so common is that people think like good food is like mission star or white people food. And the metrics that are used to code what is good food or not are inherently racially coded. And so are the standards of excellence. They're all Eurocentric. How do you think people can like reframe their ideas of what good food actually means? I 100% agree food is political. Everything is political. 100%. We can't keep ignoring that fact. And especially as people of colour, our very existence is political. This is something I talk about a lot. I was having this conversation with Nyok, Bannock Brunswick. We just cooked some food together and we were prepping and we were cutting onions. And I was thinking my ancestors were not fighting and giving each, each other shit on how to dice an onion properly. And we were talking about imposter syndrome within the food industry, if you're a cook, if you're a chef. Your talent and worth is often based on your technique. Like, do you have the technique? Like, can you make this certain French sauce and can you do this and that? And I'm just trying to, like, eradicate that idea from my mind completely. And good food, quotation marks good food, is often extremely expensive and it's inaccessible and... Even the way it looks and the way it's played and how it's presented is miles away from the food that's cooked by my family and my community's family. Like a bowl of curry is so beautiful to me. It looks gorgeous the way the oil like pills, like the reds, like the colors are gorgeous. And it's been passed down for generations. Verbally, there's no written recipe. Every person who makes it is going to make it a little bit differently. It's been cooked with so much love. That, to me, is what good food is. And I think in order to reframe the idea of good food is, you need to decolonize your mind, you need to decolonize your palate and what your own ideas of what good food can be. Just because a restaurant doesn't have a hat or a Michelin star or is in the good food guide doesn't mean the food isn't good. One of my favorite restaurants in Nam is this tiny little Somali spot on Racecourse Road that's like run by Uncle Abdul, who I love and adore now because I go there all the time. He just goes around taking orders and Auntie cooks it in the back and he brings it out and it's $20 and it's the best piece of chicken you've ever had in your life. That to me is what good food is, you know? And don't get me wrong, I love going to a bougie restaurant and having a nice meal and a good glass of wine. I think everyone can appreciate that, and there's nothing wrong with that, and there's there's talent in that as well, and I don't want to shit on that because I know people work really hard. But I also want to acknowledge that that isn't only what good food is. Good food is what you've cooked with your bare hands in your kitchen, what your friends have cooked you, what your mom has cooked you, you know? I'm just reflecting on things that you've said. Just thinking about, like, all my mum's special recipes, it just means a lot that she can, you know, find, like, value and respect in that and not just, you know, some 
like fancy place that's charging butter chicken for like eighty-five dollars. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's it, it is important to like decolonize your mind and see what good food uh, is to you as well. You know, following on from this, from We In Good, that yourself and others, you know, especially Bardock Brunswick, are also essentially radicalizing hospitality. <laughs> what do you think um, radical hospitality means for you? I think it can mean so many things. Um, me, we did an event uh, with Next Wave, and it was called Radical Hospitality. I think it was radical. I think that event was radical in the way that it was accessible. I think hospitality sometimes is really inaccessible, and this event was like ten dollars. And for me, radical hospitality, it's like, yeah, accessibility. And for me, it's like platforming really diverse pe- people whenever I do an event, um, whether, you know, it's food and art, like all the artists are of community. Um, it's not just having chefs cook, trained chefs cook. It's having home cooks who love to feed people and want to know how to do it in a larger scale. Like that to me is radical, like giving them that space to do that. Um, removing the professional aspect of it and making it more community and connection based and having people enjoy food in a different way. Like I love a lot of the events I've done. It's been like family style buffet and so it's just a bunch of food that Nyop, who is my idol and icon, and Rio, who is in the film, we just, yeah, lay it out on a table and people go and graze and they eat. And it's like surrounded by this beautiful art made by these artists of color. And even with the pop-ups that we do with um Seth at Oko, a lot of the chefs that are cooking are just queer people who really want to have that experience of what it's like to cook in a commercial kitchen. They haven't been trained, um, and we're all there just figuring it out together. I, With my, like, little kitchen experience, I'm in there, like, trying to help out, trying to do what I can, running food, hosting. It's just about, yeah, being together and just figuring it out along the way and not subscribing to what, you know, hospitality looks like. Yeah, for sure. I think you're redefining so much of what these spaces mean for communities and culture and queerness. And honestly, it's like I feel like I'm forgetting the questions that I'm meant to ask because I think listening to you, it like really touches parts of my heart where I feel like I'm getting emotional listening to all of these things because I sometimes do feel like disconnected from my queerness and my culture. Um, and then knowing that the places where I do feel the most cared for I when people cook for me or when I cook for others and it's a space that really should be sacred you know in the home in the kitchen in the smiley shop wherever you want really commend you for recreating spaces that you know create so much joy and lastly can you tell us more about the event that's coming up on Saturday 6th of May at the Footscray Community Arts Center um what can we expect how can we support how do we give you our money? <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's the premiere of the film, world premiere. And, yeah, it's at Footscray Community Arts Centre with Human Rights Arts and Film Festival. We have catering, of course, by Nyop, now Nyop Brunswick. Um, I could rave about her for days. And there'll be a panel with myself, Nisha, my co-producer, and who also filmed the documentary and Haseeb Horani 
um, Palestinian writer, poet, icon, dear, dear friend of mine who is also in the film and makes some incredible food. And the panel will be moderated by my dear, dear friend, Seb Passanetti from Oko, queer black hospitality king, who I do all of the Queer Chef series with, who is my best friend's twin brother. <laughs> it's just amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, it starts at three. Please come hungry with a box of tissues and come and support. There's tickets in my bio. Um, and if you can't come to the event, you can watch the film um, through Acme. Um, you can rent it and watch it for the duration of the film festival. That's amazing. Thank you so much. We'll put all of that in our show notes as well. Um, but yes, we will all come hungry with a box of tissues ready to support. But thanks so much for coming on here today on 3CR Thursday Breakfast with Tease. Thank you for having me. No worries. See ya. Oh, what a beautiful interview. Um, two absolute powerhouses. So that was Matisse Slater, joined uh, by Inez. And Matisse is an actor, writer, model, producer, and all-round sweetheart who joined Inez to talk about Matisse and Nisha Hunter's We Eat and Good, a collaborative food platform dedicated to amplifying queer, black, indigenous, and people of color community building. And they spoke about how queerness, culture, and food intersect and what redefining good food looks like. And you can catch the world premiere of We Eat in Good, the documentary, uh, which is on Saturday the 6th of May at Footscray Community Arts Center from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. as part of the Human Rights Arts and Film Festival. And you can also rent the film online at Acme. And as usual, we will have all of that information in our show notes. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Have you experienced or seen racism against blackfellas? Report racism against First Nations people with Call It Out, an online register to expose racism. Stand up. Be heard. Call it out. Go to callitout.com.au. A 3CR supporter. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. And we are back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 8.01 in the morning on Thursday, the 27th of April. And we're now going to hear an interview that Fung from Tuesday Breakfast did uh, earlier this week with Dr. Jessica Hambly, who's a senior lecturer at the ANU College of Law and co-director of the Law Reform and Social Justice Program. And Jess and Fung spoke about Australia's cruel refugee policies and how they've impacted policies in other countries. Now, Jess is a socio-legal scholar with interests in access to justice for people seeking asylum, asylum law and procedure, refugee rights, gender and migration, legal professions and radical lawyering, inclusion and participation in legal spaces, court and tribunal architectures. And Jess has also worked with a number of grassroots migrant and refugee rights organizations, including Bristol Refugee Rights, Lesbos Legal Center and Samus Legal Center. So let's hear that interview now. Jess joins us on today's show to talk to us about Australia's cruel refugee policies and how they have impacted policies in other countries. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast, Jess. Hello, how are you? I'm really well, thank you. Uh, And thank you so much for making the time to speak with us this morning. 
Thanks very much for having me. So last month, UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak spoke at a podium with the words Stop the Boats, a slogan that we in here in so-called Australia are very used to seeing. Can you tell us more about this rhetoric that's being used in the UK and the impact that Australia has had on this? Yeah, um, great question to start with. So I think that the, the sort of export goes back much further than, you know, just last month, Richard Sunak speaking behind that podium. Uh, for years now, Australia has kind of been um, almost celebrated by right-wing leaders around the world for having these really brutal policies. And it's something really extremely worrying to see how far-right leaders in you know around Europe in in Germany and Sweden in Denmark and of course in Britain have taken up this really hard line what they call the Australian solution and and really what we're talking about with the Australian so-called Australian solution is extremely cruel very brutal um, very hard policies that try to make it as hard as possible for people seeking asylum um, to actually reach safety um, and be and have the sort of um, be given refugee status in the way that most countries have actually signed up to under international law. Yeah, it's quite sickening to know that, like you said, that is something that Australia is celebrated for and held in such high regard for, for these um really cruel and draconian policies and we know that the impact this has had on people's health and and well-being um has been uh just yeah just so um so incredibly difficult and especially during COVID as well yeah absolutely and i think you're right that um you know last month that really ramped up in terms of quite how um explicitly the uk is currently trying to replicate those policies and of course we know that certain personalities from australia have been involved with political leaders in the uk and and again that's not just this year but that goes back over the last 10 years um so we know that tony abbott um alexander downer and other high um, profile strategists have been directly advising the UK government. Um, so, of course, pe- people might have heard about the Rwanda plans. Um, essentially, last year, the UK signed a deal with Rwanda so that anybody arriving um, in a so-called uh, illegal but what might be seen as unauthorised way in the UK, that is, without some kind of visa um, by boat, will be sent under asylum claim processed. Um, the difference in the UK is that there's a fairly uh, strong, robust human rights framework there. So over the course of the year, there have been various legal challenges to the decisions that were made under that new policy. And those are still in the courts at the moment. And so uh, no one has actually been sent to Rwanda yet. Um, but, the, the, you know, the plans are very much still in in motion unfortunately yeah and there's something quite twisted about um you know part of part of the bill what it, what it's called that partnership between the uk and rwanda being called like a migration and economic development partnership um yeah you know it really hides it really hides its true intentions and and that is to 
ensure or make it really difficult, like you said, or make it impossible for people who who um, who want to settle in the UK um, that they yeah will then send them to Rwanda instead. But yeah, that wording, that naming of that um, that partnership is is really something. Yeah, absolutely, and I think those kind of. Um the naming and sort of the euphemisms that go with it sometimes are really quite disgusting. They mask a lot of um, really uh, sort of intense and deliberate cruelty that underlies some of those policies. Um, so, for example, with the Rwanda plans, and this is, a, a, you know, a direct influence from Australia, the whole thing is is a based on the idea that there are no exceptions. So, for example, there's um, in the UK, there's a, a trafficking framework and, and protections around uh, modern slavery for people who might have been trafficked into the country. Well, none of that will apply for people. So that puts um, certain groups, I mean, especially women, but we know that men are obviously trafficked as well um, at very high risk. Um, there's no exemptions for children, so children would also be subject to mandatory detention and then um, sent to Rwanda within a few weeks. Um, so yeah, these, these policies are really extremely cruel and it's so depressing to see how not only is, is Australia still, I mean, on both sides or all sides of the political um, spectrum still actually wedded to these policies, but that they're now gaining such traction um, around the world. Yeah, and we'll get to um, some some updates within Australia's refugee policies in just a moment. But just to uh, continue with what you were saying, Jess, that you know a, a lot of these policies are obviously incredibly cruel and harmful to everyone, but especially women, children, and, and queer people. Can you tell us further about this and how this Rwanda policy will impact these groups of people? Yeah. So essentially, what happens is people, the idea is that. Um, on arrival in the UK, you'd be detained pretty much straight away. Um, and you might have some kind of screening or admissibility, inter admissibility interview, but generally things will happen at such a pace that groups which you would hope would be protected from further harm, and which in, in fact the UK has said, um, you know, under international law, it, it won't send people to places where they face um, a high risk of experiencing harm. Well, actually, those people probably will be sent on to um, countries where their lives will be at risk. So we know that, for example, um, in Rwanda, being gay or lesbian itself isn't a criminal offence, but um, members of LGBTQ plus community do face high levels of stigma and enhanced discrimination. Um, there's no legal recognition for trans identities there. Um, the police in that country have used uh, public morality laws to target people. Um, so we do know that people being sent to Rwanda will experience, not only will they not be recognised um, necessarily as, as refugees, but they will also experience ill treatment, um, you know, arbitrary arrest, detention, um, other kinds of degrading treatment if they're sent there. So that's really worrying. Yeah. Now, turning back to Australia, last month the Albanese government voted against the migrant, uh, Migration Amendment Evacuation to Safety Bill 2023. Uh, this bill, introduced by Green Senator Nick McKim, proposed to urgently evacuate 150 refugees still held in detention in Papua New Guinea and Nauru. Can you give us some more detail about this? 
Yeah, so what that bill would have done, as you say, is provided a way for those people um, to be evacuated and come back to Australia. And we think there's somewhere around 150 people still being held offshore in PNG and Nauru. Um, the Albanese government kind of has committed to ending um, offshore detention like that. But as you say, the bill was voted down um, and that was rejected by parties across the political spectrum, um, you know, which is, I think, quite revealing about refugee policy in Australia. There has been some softening with the new government, but actually they're still committed to some of the really hardline stuff, um, a lot of which is focused around uh, deterrence still, this idea that you have to have these hard policies in place because otherwise... Um, people will continue to come or whatever, which we know, you know, from so much research now that that is incorrect. It's misguided. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't actually um, stop people coming. There's there's loads of research now that says people generally are not making decisions based on the migration policy um, in in place in the country where they're trying to reach. Um, that just simply isn't true. Um, so, yeah, with regard to the, the, the Migration Amendment Bill, um, I think it's really important to actually still keep pressure on politicians. Um, obviously, law can't do all the work, um, but I think that that bill would have provided um, a relatively humane and fair way to evacuate the refugees who are still being held in offshore, um, well, on, on Nauru and PNG. Um, yeah, and I think that's a really good point to make there, just that, you know, with this new government, it's it's perhaps even more crucial now to keep up the pressure, um, write to your local MPs, um, and really push for um, push for radical policies that yeah. will ensure that refugees and asylum seekers can, um, you know, be settled here and be given the appropriate um, care. Um, that they need and that they deserve um, in order to be here. So, yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I did want to touch on this conversation that you had with Professor Kim Rubenstein from the University of Canberra last week. Um, You were both in conversation with each other about the so-called Australian solution, so looking into Australia's refugee policies. Um, Can you tell us some of the issues that uh, were raised in this discussion and anything in particular that, um, that really stood out for you? Yeah, so um, the aim of that meeting is really, it's an annual meeting that the Refugee Action Campaign in Canberra holds um, after the the Palm Sunday rallies. And I'd spoken at it last year, and at that time I wasn't really sure about what was happening with Rwanda policies, because at that time um, England has also tried to introduce um, a a boat turnback policy, which had been struck down. So anyway, that was kind of the entry for the meeting. Um, But... Professor Kim Rubenstein, whose expertise is more in kind of citizenship and constitutional law, made some really interesting points about um, the voice referendum and how, you know, what's at stake is actually something much bigger around Australian citizenship and who belongs here um, and kind of legacies of trying to keep people out and, and nation building around particular visions of whiteness and around who who ought to be seen as Australian and not and she I mean she's the real 
expert there. So I would encourage people to read her work if they're interested. Um, but I thought that was a really powerful point to make um, and kind of draws us back to things about how struggles are often interrelated um, and, you know, calls for inclusion are are bigger than thinking about just certain groups. It's a bigger question of how we want um, our society to be and how we stand in solidarity with each other, I think. Yeah, and I think that's the perfect note to end on is that reminder that, like you said, it's a joint struggle um, mm. that, you know, the types of the types of oppression that one group face um, isn't necessarily different to another group and and like you said we should all be in solidarity with each other to push back against um, uh, against you know capitalist colonial patriarchal powers that that try to oppress us all so um, a great point to end on Um, well thank you so much uh, Jess for joining us on the show today I think it's really important to keep up with what's going on regarding what's happening um, with refugee policy not only here but uh, overseas as well because like you said Australia has had a lot of impact and influence there Um, but yes thank you again for joining us on 3CR Breakfast thank you so much And that was Dr. Jessica Hambly speaking with Fung earlier this week on 3CR's Tuesday Breakfast Show about Australia's cruel refugee policies and how they have impacted policies in other countries. And Dr. Jessica Hambly is a senior lecturer at the ANU College of Law and co-director of the Law Reform and Social Justice Program. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And for our final interview for today, we are joined by Kerry Klim to have a chat about the everyday lived impacts on First Nations people of mainstream conversations about a First Nations voice to Parliament and a push for constitutional recognition, which is an issue that Kerry notes has frequently been left out of mainstream media's Indigenous affairs coverage. Kerry is a Guguyalanji and Kokalama Lama woman from far north Queensland and now lives in Mianjin, lands of the Yagara and Turbal peoples. And she runs creative communications consultancy Flash Black and has over 25 years in mainstream and First Nations media. Kerry, good morning. Good morning. So maybe we can start off, um, if you wanted to introduce yourself in a bit more detail or provide a bit of context on your, you know, how, where you're coming from when you come to this issue. Yeah. Oh, I'm looping. Is that? Oh, can you hear my? <laughs> um, oh so no! It's... I... Wait, actually, keep keep going. It was cutting in and out, but keep going. Okay, I could hear myself. Um, so I come to this uh, as a 50-year-old Aboriginal woman. I grew up. Um, I'm from I'm Gugayelangi and Lama Lama on my mother's side. Uh, my grandmother. Kuka Yalanji was stolen as a child uh, and taken to Yarrabah Mission in the early 1900s. 
And my grandfather uh, is Kakalamalama, and he was stolen as a child and um, taken to Yarrabah Mission, and in fact, in the early 1900s. And in fact, his mother, my great-grandmother, she was stolen um, as a child and to be a slave in Cooktown in the late 1800s. So we have stolen generations upon stolen generations Mm -hmm. um, removed to Yarrabah, where my grandparents met in the dormitories under the Act, Uh, no family around them. And they they met and they had uh, children, including my mother, uh, they're born in Yarrabah, and then they moved over to Cairns, where I grew up. So I grew up absolutely knowing who I am as an Aboriginal person, as an Aboriginal woman. Uh, I was very proud of who I am. I was um, obviously heartbroken to hear the stories that had happened, what had happened to my grandmother, my great-grandmother, my family, and um, those stories that, you know, they're etched in my heart, they're etched in my mind. And as I grew up, I became more resolute to um, speak these stories wherever I can so people can understand the true history of this country and the impact it's had on, on people like myself. Um, I actually see a therapist weekly um, because of the racism uh, that I've experienced throughout my life, because mm. of the racism that my mother has experienced, because of the racism that my grandmother has experienced and grandfather and my great-grandmother. It has, the trauma has, you know, teared down through me and this is the reality of, of First Nations people and in this country and what I experienced. Um, and in that, I am resolute, I am proud, I am strong, um, And so I come to this uh, issue of constitutional reform and the referendum with a very mixed heart and a mixed mind um, because when we hear the words, when I hear the words advice, advisory, it's really very triggering. My family experienced so much racism. I experienced so much racism. And you hear the words that it will be advice only and the government can, can choose whether it will or will not take that advice. It's so dismissive of who I am as an Aboriginal person, of all that I've endured, my family's endured, and that our mob are enduring now. Um, the incarceration rates, the child removal rates, it's just the word advisory. I'm a communications expert, as you um, said in the... Mm. In the introduction and advisory is a really powerful word it means take it or leave it um and that's very triggering for me Mm -hmm. yeah and i mean i appreciate you providing that that personal context as well um in, in the way that you um you know experience these conversations that are happening now because I'm wondering um, if you could if you could speak to you know how mainstream media coverage of the voice to parliament and constitutional recognition has sort of framed the parameters of public discussion about these issues, and then how that relates on the the everyday level of experience when you know First Nations people are sort of navigating the world while there is this media uproar happening. <laughs> media uproar is is the, is the, is what it's all about. Um, we're just trying to live. We're trying to survive um, in this place. We're trying to do the best we can. And like you say, there is this conversation going on about our future while we are actually living in the present. And that's really difficult to get our head around because we're really just trying to navigate 
um, this colony as it exists today and thinking how can things change. And, of course, you have to think about that, otherwise we will never progress. Things won't change. We don't think about the future. You know, I completely understand that. But, um, but, but for many of us, and I can tell you, and I'll, you know, it, it, it has sparked conversation. Well, I, that's for sure. So in the last week, I've had multiple conversations with immediate family, and the first, you know, question or within it comes up, what do you think of the voice? And every response has been, we don't know, we don't really understand it. And these are from really immediate mob, friends, community, and they range from ages 20 to 70. So we have, like, traditional owners on the 70 and up, the traditional owners of their lands, um, down to people who are, you know, in their 50s, um, who've been working their whole life in in various um, spaces, but mainly education, right down to 20s who just, you know, young spring chickens entering the workforce and, and really um, finding their way in the world. And all of them say we're not sure. We're not sure because we're just trying to navigate racism as it exists today. Mm. And not sure is is obviously not good enough. It means that we're we're not informed enough. And why are we not informed enough? That's that's critical. And where do we go to seek that information aside from a website um, or just online seminars? Blackfellas need to yarn with each other. That's mm-hmm. how we've been, you know how you find that information. And that's unfortunately we're not finding that information out from each other within the circle, um, and that's the reality. So we're just almost a little bit going about our daily lives, and every now and we dip our toe in and we read something, we see something, and we just go, oh, well, it's looming, it's happening, and, and it's really sad that there's, there's, there's a group of us that are feeling really uninformed, and that mm-hmm. is anxiety. That, to me, is really huge anxiety. I'm about to decide on something, and let's face it, all these non-Indigenous people are going to decide for me. And for me personally, that's really anxiety-driven. It's like, again, First Nations people have no control in this country. The control has been taken away from us. And Michael Mansell said that recently in an article. There are many, many people, First Nations people, who are undecided, um, who are fearful, who this is anxiety-driven. And I don't really... That's not captured. Mm. That is not captured about how this is impacting First Nations people. It's either, yes, yay, let's celebrate, wahoo, this is amazing, or no, you're racist. Mm-hmm. And there's between there. The people like me and other First Nations people in between are going, well, this is actually anxiety-driven and confusing. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, and you know, it's you're the people who who this discussion has the highest stakes for at the end of the day. I mean, you know, the, the settler population, the majority of the population uh, is getting to, to make this decision. And yet, um, you know, First Nations people, uh, there are many First Nations people that are still feeling unsure about this, that don't uh, necessarily have their, their concerns addressed in a substantial way. Um, and then there's all this um, constant media scrutiny of both vilification on the one side and paternalism on the other. So um, as we uh, move to wrapping up, I was hoping that you could also speak to, to speak to that. Oh, goodness. <laughs> well, I mean, online particularly, you know, I'm, I'm very active on Twitter and I love that space. So I found it a space where I can engage and, and get myself informed. Um, unfortunately, when I do ask those questions about um, what's going to happen and, and how those dialogues happened and questions in general about, about the referendum, um, I'm attacked. And then I look at other First Nations people on Twitter who are asking questions or who are outrightly saying no, and that's okay, they're allowed to. They're not racist. 
you know, but unfortunately, um, I see, I have seen non-Indigenous people attack myself, other First Nations people for voting no, uh, saying that, uh, telling us what's best for us, how we should vote. Uh, and that is really, really frightening. This is a frightening aspect of the vote as we lead into it. So I'm really frightened about what's going to happen after the vote. And mm-hmm. that's yes or no. Both outcomes will be, I believe, really frightening for us if we're seeing what's happening now and just non-Indigenous people feeling so emboldened to say, uh, this is how you should vote. It's going to be good for you. Yeah. Um, voice. What happened to the voice? You know, I have a voice. Can you please just listen to it and listen to my fears? No, and understand totally. the real feeling. Yeah, and, you know, what happens if the voices of some First Nations people are saying, we want, you know, we want to find out more about how this process actually works, what the, you know, what the voice entails and how it's going to change our material realities. Um, and yet, as you said, um, a lot of mainstream media reporting and political discussions about this has really emboldened settlers to really drill down into that like, paternalism and entitlement to, to comment. Yeah, and and it's driven also by just <laughs> decades of promises mm-hmm. and failures. That's the other anxiety-driven element to this. We are told to have faith in this, to have hope in this, that will bring the country together. But we have been told that many times. Bob Hawke promised a treaty uh, by 1990. Uh, just very, very recently, the Queensland government, uh, in one particular day, I think it was just at the end of last year, they voted not to raise the age of children in detention, not to raise mm-hmm. the age, keep it at 10. And, of course, who's the most incarcerated in Queensland of youth mm-hmm. or in, in, the, in the larger population, the um, prison population, is First Nations people. So they voted not to raise the age. The very next day, they embarked on their celebration of a treaty process. Mm-hmm. Um, that is really actually... Uh, <laughs> oh, there's many words for that, but it is just so sickening. Mm. to do that to us and then go, oh, here, we're going to go on a first, you know, a treaty process. And this is how we are treated over and over and over and over. And um, we're tired and we're treated like this and we just sort of go, well, what's the catch? What's going to happen? Mm-hmm. And we see it playing out now the way non-Indigenous people are treating us mob who um, are questioning it. And so we go, what's going to happen when it, if it does go through? what's going to happen in reality, and if it doesn't go through, what's going to happen in reality and the racism that will come from it. But both ways, it's really quite fearful. Yeah, absolutely. Look, Carrie, I'm really keen to keep these discussions going on, on Thursday Brecky, but we're going to have to wrap up now. But thank you so much for taking the time to, to speak with us about this and provide a perspective that I think has really been missing from a lot of the public conversation, which is, you know, how this is playing out at the everyday level. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Priya. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. And that was Kerry Klim, who is a Gugu Yalanji and Koko Lama Lama woman from far north Queensland, uh, living in Mianjin on the lands of the Turbal and Yuggera peoples. Uh, she runs a creative communications consultancy, Flash Black, and has over 25 years of experience in mainstream and First Nations media. And we were just speaking about the everyday lived impacts on First Nations people of mainstream conversations about a First Nations voice to Parliament and the push for constitutional recognition, which has been frequently left out of mainstream media's Indigenous affairs coverage, uh, even though there has been this real, as Kerry 
Murray notes emboldening of settlers to tell Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people how uh, they should vote and whether or not they're racists for making decisions either way on the voice to Parliament, even though there are some outstanding questions. That's all we've got time for today on Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and we will catch you next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.